My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Erica Hornthal. Erica is a licensed clinical professional counselor, a board-certified dance movement therapist, and the CEO and founder of Chicago Dance Therapy. Since graduating with her master's in dance movement therapy and counseling from Columbia College, Erica has worked with thousands of patients from ages 3 to 107, and she's known as the therapist who moves you on social media. Erica is changing the way people see movement with regards to health. In this conversation, we talk about Erica's book, Body Aware, which was inspired by her work with patients with Alzheimer's and releases this August. I'm Kim Rothwell, and I'm welcoming you to the Return to Embodiment. Thank you for reaching out. Oh, you're welcome. Sometimes I feel a little like, is this too forward of me? No, I'll just go for it. Cause, um, I really love your content, but I really appreciate the time and, um, you know, and your, and your platform, which is just, um, yeah, you guys don't have to extend it to everyone. So I really appreciate your, your interest. Yeah. I'm excited to talk with you about your book and mm-hmm. some of the stuff that you're doing. It's very exciting that you just published, um, body aware is what it's called. And um, so one of the things I like to do is just establish how we know each other. Yeah. Thinking back, I was trying to remember, I know that we met through Columbia. Yeah. Were you in the class after me? I think so. Were you in class with Ellie? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that was the class, I think right above me. Were you in the big class? Yes. So um I mean, I think I remember, like the first I remember probably seeing you was definitely because you were in the class before, uh, ahead of us at Columbia. And then you were either still working on your thesis or you had just finished it, but you came back to teach um, on your thesis, like on your work, right around, was it self-care? Am I getting that right? Um, it was It was on spirituality, the spirituality. Spirituality, I the wrong mm-hmm. S, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, um, an aspect of self-care, in my opinion. Totally. But yes, I remember you coming back and teaching our class around research, right, around your thesis. And then I feel like it was more like in the field, being on each other's radar, seeing each other, uh, like, go to some presentations or hear about, like, things that you were doing with regard to workshops. Columbia College definitely was, definitely was the start. And... Yeah, I think I remember like wanting to lean on a little bit the the older the, the class above us of like what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> What's going on here? You what do I need to know? <laughs> <laughs> Could you define dance therapy for me? Right. Mm. <laughs> oh God, I don't have to do that now. Do it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. Cause like 15 years, 10 years later, I still not really sure I can define that. So <laughs> Yeah. So I like to begin, and I know you, you, you're probably prepared for this with the question, how is embodiment to you? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And I thought, oh, no problem. I, we worked in embodiment. There's an easy answer. And I was like, oh, 
is it that easy? So I definitely had to think about it. I didn't want a definition like a textbook. And I, I thought like, oh, who works in embodiment? You know, how is their definition? And I think what I came down to was for me, embodiment is realizing that, and this is probably even cliche, but for me, it's really about understanding that it's not just having a body, but that we are the body, that we, we, we be, we do, we exist. Um, and so it really comes from within and about understanding and experiencing, maybe that's the better word, experiencing all life has to offer as a body, not just through, you know, things the body does or how the body looks or kind of like those external pieces of aesthetic um, that I think the body becomes so much about, you know, that society places so much importance on. So I think it's definitely a, a way of life after a while. I still have to remind myself to be embodied because I'm so used to going back to that headspace. Um, but I feel like when I am embodied, it's more intentional and I have much more um, agency and kind of power over my circumstance than feeling, um, you know, coming from a cognitive or like mind place, feeling like my emotions control me. When I'm embodied, I feel like we're, we, we can work together. I can, I can learn from them and I can um, work through them. So I have to remember that, that I'm, it's not just about having a body, it's about using it and understanding it and listening to it. What are the main practices that you have that <clears throat> cultivate that for you? I think for me, it's really just been a practice about taking the time to listen and be aware of what's coming up in my body, what I am feeling, sensations, tensions, the temperature, the, the senses around me. That's been first and foremost is just when the propensity is to go to the mind and logically talk or reason with what's happening or why it's happening, I really intentionally have to remember, whoa, just notice what you feel. Just go back to the awareness of what's happening physically, you know, even psychosocially, like those things that pop up in our body. What is your body trying to tell you? Um, that's been a number one practice. I think a, another practice is, is continuing to dance. You know, for me, moving through my body is what keeps me moving through all of life's challenges. And it's not about forcing any type of dance, but just authentically showing up in a dance class or a, I do a lot of like kind of cardio, funk, hip hop kind of classes and just coming as I am, like not expecting it to look a certain way, not performing, but just moving my body. Because if I don't, the tension just continues to build and, and keeps me stuck in those places. I have to remember to actively engage in those processes too. And it's not always second nature. It's still something I'm learning. Yeah. Stuckness. I like what you just said. It's a maintenance thing. It's an ongoing care thing. And the, the body will get stuck if it doesn't have the opportunity to move. And the emotions will get stuck as well if they're not allowed to move in some way. Um, it feels like, like you said, such a simple thing. And yet 
so important and not really taught. We, we were talking a little bit our, about our children, of course, as a parent, part of what I'm teaching is um, through my own regulation or lack thereof, mm-hmm. <laughs> how my children- I would fall into that second category, definitely. <laughs> how my children can do these very things that we're talking about of like, oh, wow, I'm getting fired up. I'm getting frustrated. What are my options here? What am I noticing rise in my body? A lot of heat or attention or, or whatever. And, and there are options of things to do on a body level that can help bring the whole system down and can help bring the other person's system down. Mm-hmm. I remember at one time my daughter was having a tantrum and it was so loud and it felt like my brain was rattling in my head. And I literally just laid down on the ground. I was like, it will not work for me to ground through my feet. I'm going to ground through my entire backside of my body, like big X. And I just breathed. And then eventually, you know, I was regulated enough to get up and try to help her breathe. But it took me actually feeling utterly supported by the ground for a few moments. That, I mean, that's, that's such a beautiful example too, that how often do we give ourselves permission to do that? Do we even know to do that? You know, because if my kid is tantruming in the middle of the grocery store, am I going to lay down in the middle of the aisle? Maybe not. But on the other hand, like, when can I do that? You know, do I give myself permission to do it later? Um, Maybe I pick my kid up and we go outside and I find a grassy patch where I can lay down and do that. Like, we don't even know that it's possible. We're just so, so far removed from being in this body that we forget we have all of these things at our disposal. Um, And we, we do them as children for the most part, but, you know, somewhere along the way, uh, you know, we're, we're moved into the classroom, we're sat up at dusks, recess is removed and the playgrounds are taken away. And so is our creativity and imagination. (laughs) So um, the body starts to kind of wilt, you know, without that, that ability to be expressive and expansive in a, in a safe uh, capacity. Yeah. And I follow you on social media. And one of the things that I noticed is it feels, it feels to me that you're continually putting this out there. You're continually bringing attention to the body, not as an object, but as a place, as how we experience and live into the world. Mm-hmm. I'm appreciative of that. I'm appreciative of that voice in the social media space. Thank you. That's funny. I just got off a conversation about like social media before we started talking. And um, I, I do it for me. <laughs> I must say that I'm not there for whatever audience shows up, but it's really been a way for me to practice putting those thoughts out there. I know they're not, they're not new. Um, but, and certainly in our career, you know, in our path of dance movement therapy, I think so many of us believe that, but it's not, it's not mainstreamed, you know, even trauma and body is now becoming, I hate to say it, it feels very trendy, but it's true. It's becoming more mainstream, but just this idea of body for movement, mental health, being in our bodies, not just having that body, it just doesn't feel accessible all the time. If you know where to look, then you have the information, you can find it. 
But if I'm just kind of, you know, your everyday person looking for inspiration, wanting to, you know, to see someone's home decorated, a healthy meal, cute, I don't know, a bathing suit. Am I getting those messages of like, don't forget to breathe. (laughs) Don't forget to take time to listen to your body. Your movement impacts your mental health. If there's any chance that any of that gets out there, even in the slightest, that will feel like a success. And so for some, sometimes for me, it's just repeating those messages over and over again. So I get comfortable with putting it out there. Um, A new person sees it somewhere along the way. If it gets shared, great. Um, I've always felt more connected to writing in that respect than, than, than vocalizing it, you know, than putting on a camera and talking from the heart. Um, writing just seemed more um, accessible and I can kind of get it right to the point and, and craft it and just put it out there when it feels right. Um, but it's hard. I don't see social media as something that I um, am totally in line with. So for the little bit of time that I I spend on it, that's already exhausting. So my heart really kind of goes out to people that do it as a full-time gig. (laughs) Um, I don't know what that would look like, but getting an audience, getting people to listen to mental health, movement, body, embodiment is not easy. It's such a foreign concept to so many people, but they don't see how it relates to them. So I've really, really been trying for myself to practice making it accessible and relatable so that people see it pertains to everyone. And if we're struggling, I think it makes sense to go back to and look at how that's showing up in our bodies, because that's very much in our power to do something about. Mm, I like that. That's such a good, good way of, of, of looking at it. It's interesting to me to hear you say it's not your preferred place. Oh, it's yeah, actually really. a little bit more of a challenge place. <laughs> it's so hard yeah, for me it's anyway. Hard. It's hard to show up. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you're, you're also doing a practice of translation, right? I think a lot of the work that I'm interested in is this process of translating what we experience into language that is accessible that can give people an access point, which is yeah. really sounds like what you're doing. Yeah. There are so many people out there who are, um, would benefit from just having a slight shift in perspective that includes, it's okay to notice how you're feeling and respond to it. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, going back to development and education, there's a lot of structures and processes, social, um, educational, that are about ignoring the body and building that as as a life skill. Can you sit still for hours at a time? Right. And for me, the hard part, I think, of engaging in social media is, I don't even know how to put it, like the next trend, you know, I'll teach you this by this and, and you'll know how to do this. And I mean, it's a little ironic because I decided to put this into a book and I realized books aren't necessarily free for some people. Seems much more accessible than a hundreds or thousands of dollar program for something you already own. <laughs> like it's your body, you know, and we need, we need guidance. I get that. We don't always know what to do ourselves. But it just felt like, wow, if nobody has put that 
that's that simplified kind of aspect of it out there in a way that more people can grasp it, then that's something I'm interested in. You know, it's not that it's a new voice. It's not that those things haven't been said before. It's again, how do we translate it so that more people have access to it? Because it's no that people are struggling in so many ways. And if getting into our bodies and just understanding that we are able to regulate through some of these basic felt sensations can help one person manage the absurdities of the world, it's a step in the right direction. Um, and if, if that person learns it and they can spread it to someone else and can spread it to someone else, then great. You know, it's, it's not modeled unless we know to model it. You know, it's not necessarily something that's being taught to our kids unless we're teaching it to them. Could you tell me a little bit about your writing process for this book? Oh, sure. Um, let's see. What was my writing process? Um, you know, I think at the very beginning was people telling me enough, oh, you should write a book. Oh, that'd be really interesting. You should write a book. Oh, you should write a book. And I think there was a part of me that was like, oh, you think I have enough to say in a book? Thank you. And I'm not a writer. <laughs> like, I stopped writing papers after college. Um, and the thought of sitting down and having to write hundreds of pages just seems so daunting. So I kind of, you know, laughed it off for a while. And as practicing as a clinician in the state of Illinois, I really, I can't practice outside of my uh, licensure, outside of my limits. And while we can do workshops and, you know, I can, I can travel and, and do kind of seminars, I'm not seeing clients outside of my area. What if there was a way that I could give some of the information that comes up in sessions to a broader audience? Again, there are dance therapists all over the world, so I don't really need to educate on dance therapy, but what are the takeaways that my clients are, are experiencing? The dedication uh, specifically in the book was for people uh, who can't speak. Just because we can't speak doesn't mean we have nothing to say. That just because you don't have the words either biologically or emotionally, you still have so much to say because your body is always talking for you or, or speaking. Once that became clear I, and I found like my personal voice through that, it was much easier to write. And then it just became about finding the time, you know, so I would make sure that I, I set aside some time in the day to write or leaving time for inspiration of like, wow, all of a sudden I would get this feeling in my body of, I'm ready to write. I need to sit down and just whatever comes out, comes out. And if I edit it later, that's fine. Um, and thankfully having a supportive environment and family and my husband who, you know, kind of knew when those times would come, you know, it was like tended to be on the weekends or the evenings. I would go to my office at home and it was like, mommy's writing, don't bother her. <laughs> but it wasn't like consistent. It wasn't, you know, every day, nine to five, sitting down writing. It was really letting, again, like kind of moving through different parts of the day and noticing what comes up and then writing about it. And it slowly started to take form. I mean, it started as a proposal. That was a big piece. And once the proposal took form, then it was like, okay, now I have chapters. Each chapter has a theme and I'm gonna sit down and, and kind of just body and brain dump all the things that I think about these topics and slowly see how I can morph it into a chapter. That was very new for me. I'd never done that before. I didn't even know I was capable of it. And then thankfully I had wonderful editors that helped along the way that, that definitely heard my voice and was able to kind of keep honing that. You know, I hear what you're saying, but you're kind of losing 
losing you. Let's research more you. Cause I kept feeling like everything had to be backed. Everything had to be backed up. You know, and they're like, you're not writing a thesis. You're not writing a research paper. You're writing your experience. And that often is enough. You can support it with other work, you know, voices that are already out there that have also published work, but you can have original ideas, your own original ideas. They can come from other places and you can honor and respect those and put them in, you know, the footnotes, you can put them in the resources, but you're allowed to have your own ideas and not be the voice. And that was very permission giving. And then I, that, that's kind of what paved the way for the rest. I really like the dedication that was sort of the inspiration. It sounds inclusive. You said it's for those who can't speak, but still can't speak using words, but they still have a voice to communicate through the body. Mm -hmm. I immediately went to um, a friend who has a child who doesn't have words. Mm -hmm. um, And yet he, he expresses, right. And it is in the nonverbals that the communication takes place. I know that there are so many others. Some people don't have words because it's overwhelming to put words to something that is traumatic or some people don't have words because they've been uh, silenced, right? Physically and emotionally. We get silenced so often that the body just, not even the body, we, we get taught not to speak, right? Or that what I can't, what I have to say is invaluable or no, what nobody will listen. Like, I mean, for me, the inspiration came from years of working with people that had dementia. Um, you know, they were losing their words and people, family members kept saying, I'm, they're gone. The person's not there anymore. And time and time again, in dance therapy groups, I knew that wasn't true. You know, So I was like, well, I, I saw Harry today. We just, we just moved together. He told me all about X, Y, Z, you know, the daughters, the sons, the relatives couldn't believe it. They were like, what are you talking about? Dad hasn't spoken in years, you know, or he doesn't remember anything. And I just, I just knew that wasn't true, you know? So it is supposed to be inclusive. It really was for everyone. And yet the inspiration really came from those seniors, you know, my older adults that had so much to say that I learned so much from without really speaking a lot of words ever. That's so sweet. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. <laughs> I don't often remember a lot about my clients. I didn't get to know them for very long, depending on how we met or how long we worked together, but I always remember how they move. Like that's how I remember them. I might not remember um, how we met or how old they were. I'm pretty good with names. I tend to be better with faces, but I will always remember some aspect of their movement. I think that's the value for me, one of the values of dance movement therapy. I mean, that's how we communicate. That's how we do our therapy. We've seen videos lately, I think, of teachers that greet their students with a movement. They've gone viral, right? And everybody's like, this is so great. Oh, this is a wonderful teacher. And I think it's a wonderful human being. It's someone that's realizes it's not just about the words. It's actually about using movement to make a connection, you know, and to form some type of relationship to validate, to witness, right. To support that we're in this, we're both in this space and time. Um, and that very much felt like the work that I was doing with my clients, you know, that you're not going to remember me personally when you leave this room and based off of your you know, focus, your attention, your memory, you might not remember what we're doing five minutes from now while we're still in the same group, but you're talking, you're speaking. And because you have something to say, like, I'm going to listen. I think you're right. It's applicable in so many areas. You know, it's for 
the child on the spectrum. It's for, you know, the adult living with traumatic brain injury. It's for our, you know, colleagues and, and friends and family that are, um, you know, dealing with marginalization and oppression, histories of trauma. You know, there's lots of reasons that we don't feel like we can say anything, but that doesn't mean we're not talking. What drew you to work with older adults with dementia? Uh, well, my internship, I was actually at Council for Jewish Elderly, which is now Senior Life, CJE Senior Life. Um, but if you want the real, the real reason, personal reason, I had, I always had a connection to it. I had an aunt that, um, she had dementia. Um, I had done like early volunteer work with my mom, uh, senior communities, kind of like going in and reading to seniors who were, had trouble here, you know, um, had, had visual and, and auditory impairments. I had such a wonderful relationship with my grandparents. I just always had such an admiration for older adults. I guess I was kind of one of those old souls myself. So I just always felt more comfortable in their presence. And, uh, you know, when it came time to getting an internship, I, I knew right away, I told our friend, Chris Larson, I said, I know I don't want to work with kids. So of course I first had to work with kids <laughs> and then I got to work with my older adults. Um, and it just felt right. It was like the pacing and the timing that I needed, the rhythm. I didn't have to have it all figured out beforehand. Not that we ever really do, but, um, I could think of interventions in the moment because they were at a slower pace. I don't mean that in a way of like older adults are slow. It was just, there was more time. People were more, um, I think sometimes we get impatient as we go to older, but there was also more patience as well. Permission giving for me to be like, hmm, let me think for a moment on this, you know, and kind of devise like where I wanted to go in the therapy session as opposed to, for me with younger energy, what felt like I had to have a million tools in my box and pull them out at any minute, you know, it was just so dysregulating for me. I knew that that was not where my energy needed to go. It's interesting. So um, one of the things I'm curious about is the culture of older adults and their relationship to movement and dance. What did you find as a dance therapist with the older adults in terms of their access to movement, um, willingness, um, yeah. Kind of two things that are almost like juxtapositions. Like you have this culture of aging with like older adults. It's like our body gives out, right? Aging. I hear this a lot. Aging sucks, you know, um, and that it's accepted, you know, that uh, my body will just, you know, decay. It will regress and that that's okay. You know, and then you walk into nursing homes and people are sitting motionless, almost lifeless in wheelchairs, staring at a TV screen. So you have that. And that's a hard thing to come into because you have a system that says they don't move, they don't dance. Okay. Well, that makes it hard coming in as the dance movement therapist, doesn't it? But you have a generation of people. And I don't just mean like grandparents and great grandparents, because even some of our uh, boomers, right? Even millennials now, like everybody has some connection to dance or movement. But when I was coming into therapy, working with people that were coming from the twenties, the thirties, the forties, even now working with people from the sixties and the seventies, they're, they have a real connection to dance. Like dance was social. It was at their schools. It was how you met someone. 
So all you had to do was put on some music that reminded them of that era and they came to life. They didn't have to be dancers, but everybody had an association with it. So all of a sudden I'm getting stories of the Aragon and the Trianon, the famous clubs in Chicago, people learning to ballroom dance with their parents, um, you know, stories of their first dance, their first love and dance, their first dance at their wedding. Everybody had a story, you know, dancing um, or, or celebrating or some type of ritual based off of their culture or their heritage. Like everybody had some relationship to dance and movement. And it's hard because sometimes those two ends of the spectrum don't come together. And I think that's where dance movement therapy actually thrives. It's like, no, we can actually marry the two. We can be in a system that says movement and dance is not possible and recognize that dance and movement is possible in everyone. <laughs> and we work our magic and all of a sudden everybody's like, oh my God, I think there's something here. Why did I not know about this before? So you're really entering into systems where people are immobilized and stuck. Like we were yeah. talking about earlier, there's like an inertia factor that has to be overcome in order for people to begin to move. And one of the things that you use in addition to your, your skills and your interventions is music and that reminiscence of, <clears throat> I'm going to put on something that's going to inspire a memory mm-hmm. and it will shift how everyone is in their body mm-hmm. and overcome a little bit of that inertia so that maybe there's a little sway and maybe there's a little willingness to stretch or shuffle or remember yeah. and talk about one of these sweet memories from the past. Yeah. Yeah. We always come, I, at some point come to this like music movement conundrum or, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. If you're making music, there's movement, right? And if you're listening to music, there's movement. Like there's, there's synapses, there's firing, the brain is coming online. Um, And so it's such a beautiful synergy, you know, using music and movement and a lot of music therapists that use movement and a lot of movement therapists that use music. Um, and that's for me always been kind of a, a necessary support to have because not everybody, because they're in this system that says you can't move, not everybody has the immediate accessibility to move, um, even if I'm modeling it for them. It just doesn't, it doesn't register. And so I find coming in and having music is, is that supportive thread, you know, that, that allows them to just naturally, even automatically subconscious or maybe it's unconscious in some sense move and then it's like oh look look mrs smith's toes are tapping let's try that you know and then all of a sudden the whole room's moving and we didn't really didn't have to focus so much on let's learn to dance right let's do a step let's talk about a memory it it just naturally happens so you know that marriage of music and movement i think is um so magical and uh also underutilized in so many ways you bring an, an improvisational, um, relational quality to listening to music together. Mm-hmm. And from there, movement arises. And you're just kind of listening for it, waiting for it, observing, tracking. Yeah. Yep, yeah, bringing that awareness piece in. 
even if someone doesn't like the music, there's movement there too. There's an immediate like, oh, <laughs> a red or like a cringe or a, a constricting in the body. You know, it doesn't have to be enjoyable. Like I've had plenty of groups in the past where, you know, you play a certain song and it brings up a very difficult memory um, or a very challenging time in that person's life. And that's very telling also, because again, the body still responds, there's still movement and, you know, we can honor that. We can witness that as well. And so that would happen in a group of people with dementia, where there would be a song that would come up and it would be some kind of an unpleasant experience or memory. And you would hold space for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the human experience, right, is like this full spectrum of emotions and and especially with someone who doesn't have the ability to regulate their emotions um, because of the, degen the degenerative nature of the disease, that you know there could be these large mood swings, and sometimes for no reason at all, you know, just a biological reason, right? And just being able to witness and hold space for the emotion, um, kind of like you were saying at the beginning with your child, you know, that I know for me, if if my kid is upset or having a tantrum, it's very hard for me to be like. Oh, wait, that's just an emotion we need to create space for because I have an attachment to that child, right? I know you don't normally do this, or this is really inconvenient for mommy. <laughs> you know, it's like we just need to make space for the fact that there's an emotion happening. This is some type of communication. So, being honestly with my older adults helped gear me up for parenthood in that respect. There's still, there's still opportunities to learn all the time how to regulate ourselves when our, when our family, family members are less than, um, yeah, I think it is about just, just witnessing, holding space and, um, understanding that it's hard, it's hard for us to hold space for difficult emotions. We need a, a way to, to vent them as well. It, it strikes me that there's something, um, best practice or even, justice oriented in what you're doing um, because there are forces that move older adults towards immobilization. There are forces within systems that move towards immobilization. There are also forces that try to control emotions, whether it's through medication or there's an idea that emotion is, is inconvenient in a mm. space of a group home or a group setting. Um, and so trying to kind of control emotion, yeah, minimize it, um, yeah. is it also strikes me that that's also a justice issue. It's also a human, human rights issue. Um, are older adults allowed have the full experience of feelings? Um, I remember during my internship, I was working with adults with dementia and I was facilitating a group and I was very sensitive to not wanting to infantilize at all. Yeah. You know? And, and so I was kind of tuning in all the time and I was concerned about props a lot of the time. Cause I, I, oh, I was worried too. that props would kind of feel childlike to them. Mm. I was trying to build movement without using props mm -hmm. and um everyone was seated in chairs and somehow who knows why i started talking about pushing 
And there was this older woman who I adored and she was like, she was pushing with her arms, you know, just pushing straight forward. And I put my own hands against her and the sound that came out of that woman, it was like, it was like animal. It was like, she was ready to push me over. There was, there was some anger, rage. There was some energy behind it that Uh I just kind of put my hands against hers. And she, she made that sound and she pushed next moment. She was as sweet as pie as normal times, you know, like she was just like the sweetest thing ever. But in that moment, there was something channeled and it felt Mm -hmm. to me like, like that felt like such a success to me in that I had held space for something that none of us understood, but that was living in her body in some way. And maybe that was a little release moment Mm -hmm. so that it didn't have to stay stuck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the excitement, I don't know, honor, I can't really think of the right word, but the fact that like we get to do that, (laughs) Um, you know, to the naked eye, like somebody walking by might not get it, might not understand it. But for me, it's very exciting to have that as what I got to do for the day, you know, or what I got to do in session that it didn't always have to be about talking. There didn't have to be logic or reason. I didn't have to explain it to anyone. But if it allowed someone to move through, like you said, an emotion that was stuck, or it was just a way that they needed to express themselves in that moment in time, and it provided some some relief or some release, then my work was done. I remember one of the first groups I did in my internship, you know, 90 and even 100 girls in the group, we had temper tantrums. We just, we just threw a temper tantrum, like a collective temper tantrum, and it was so powerful. It wasn't a long thing, but it was just like, when was the last time you just like screamed at the top of your lungs? And that brought up frustration and it brought up like when I'm not heard and what do I want to do? And how do I feel when someone tells me otherwise? And yet we're not allowed to throw tantrums. Those become behaviors and then we get medicated for them. So um, it was funny to hear people walk by and like, is everybody okay? What's going on? We're like, we're fine. We're just having temper tantrum. <laughs> So yeah, sometimes those pushing, those urges, those like those screams, those noises, like whatever those are, I mean, they're in us, they need to come out. And if we don't have a, an appropriate or, um, you know, a system that says it's appropriate, then where do they go? Where they just get stuck. Yeah. And then it, it's also, you know, the sound, <clears throat> sound can be dysregulating for others, you yeah. know? And so even in that moment, when I was facilitating that for the, for the, this, this woman, and I didn't anticipate that she was going to be releasing this, this beast. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and yet, and, and I was conscious of like, oh, is everybody else okay with it? And I was kind of, you know, taking it in. No one else <clears throat> stepped into that. No one else had a sound that expressed any kind of frustration. Right. Um, I was very uh, curious, like, what is it for them? Because I know, especially with people with, with dementia, there is that, the dysregulation, especially like the sundowning, and mm-hmm. there can be a tremendous amount of anxiety about not knowing what's happening next. Right, right. Or I think my mom's supposed to be coming to pick me up but you're 90 
Right, right. Or, or, yeah, or we may fall into the mindset of it's three o'clock. I need to go pick up my child. And again, you're like, I don't have, you don't have no. school age children. Right, right. And then we get stuck in the logic of like, but Sally, your kids are grown. You know, that's not their reality. They don't know that. And, and it's not we, that helpful to say something like that. No, it makes all. them more agitated. But I, I should say there were some people that I'd see it happening. And, and like, I would stand in the outskirts and I'd be like, no. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the, the resident would respond with, thank you, dear. <laughs> like walk away. Like, thank you for reminding me that I don't have to worry about my child. But that was very, that was far, few and far between. You know, it was usually like, what are you talking about? I have to get to my child. You're talking crazy, you know, and trying to push our own agenda instead of recognizing like what was behind those words, you know, it was fear, anxiety, confusion, um, you know, it runs the gamut, obviously, but, you know, when we're speaking to the emotion or how it's showing up in the body, it is a lot, can be a lot easier. Maybe that's not the right word. We can, we can um, pay attention to and diffuse the intensity of the emotion instead of, you know, bypassing it or minimizing it or silencing it altogether. It's a population. It's a situation where it really does drop you. You talked about this at the very beginning. It drops you out of the logical uh, mind or the arguing mind, or even the, I just told you this five minutes ago or three minutes ago. It doesn't matter, like none of that matters. You're ushered into the present moment over and over and over again with right. someone because they may not remember what happened five minutes ago when they asked right. uh, what, what time their mom was going to come pick them up or when they needed to go pick up their children. Yeah, and I think what's difficult too is that being present in our body isn't always comfortable either. You know, so just saying, okay, you know, be in your body, take a breath, it's going to be okay that's not always possible either. So unless we validate what they're currently experiencing or what we're experiencing in the body, we talk about like meeting ourselves where we are, but also meeting the body where it is, that's not going to help either. So, you know, people say, just be in the moment. Like when we're in the moment, we can't worry. Yes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's comfortable, (laughs) right? Because the feelings are there. The felt bodily sensations are there. And if I'm not feeling calm in that moment, then I don't want to be in my body. And so it's going to, you know, lead to more agitation as well. So, you know, being embodied isn't always calm and relaxing, but it is um, regulatory. (laughs) It is like, we can't regulate unless we start with where we currently are. And that's hard because a lot of people don't want to acknowledge where they currently are or can't acknowledge, you know, depending on what our cognitive abilities are. So, Right. And sometimes there's pain. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think about all the, um, the young dance movement therapists in their twenties who are like, just be embodied. It feels so good. Yeah. I love to be in my body. I mean, that's the trend on social media now is right. Take a breath, be in your body, be in this moment, you know, and you're like, what's really happening behind you? <laughs> like the picture that you're creating is so serene and lovely. So is that real? I don't know. You know, maybe I should make, a, I should make a reel where I'm, you know, what we should, we should do what you just said, right. Where you're like in a big X, you know, grounding through the back of your body while your three-year-old's like having a tantrum in the back or my three-year-old's having a tantrum in the background. It would be hilarious. I, 
I would watch that. That would go viral. <laughs> right? It's such a good metaphor or, or like e- example of what's really going on a lot of the time. To your point, you said it so beautifully. We are not always comfortable. Mm-hmm. And the ability to be uncomfortable, to befriend what is instead of doing some kind of spiritual bypassy, like, no, everything's good, Zen, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) I am peaceful. (laughs) Right. Being able to actually befriend what is, speak to it, own it, that's the starting point for the regulation of being able to release it or, or have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's go outside or it's lie down on a big X or, um, yeah, take breaths. Yeah. And so with the older adults, with some of the, the people that you are working with, there isn't necessarily the frontal lobe capacity to do, to do that choice-making decision-making. Mm-hmm. So how do you support them? Or do you work sometimes with the caregivers around that ability to uh, be in the moment, connect through the body, help to regulate? I mean, I would try very hard to communicate somewhat with you know, the caregiver when that was possible. If I, if I saw them or if I was directly working with the, the you know, client themselves and then working with the family I still feel this need of like, it seems so simple. I would just say to the caregiver, like, it's not necessarily about figuring it out, but can you pay attention to what you notice in your person, your carries, body, gestures, postures, and notice what you feel in yours? Because sometimes what we want to happen is actually a response to what we're feeling. As an example, like when I feel like I'm in a rush or like something needs to happen, like I have this knee jerk to go into the sagittal. Like I'm, I'm forward. I'm very like, hmm, it's not a big movement, but I just kind of accelerate a little bit. And that's me kind of like pushing an agenda, you know, feeling like I'm rushed or I need to go. And so whether it's a 90 year old with dementia or my, you know, toddler, I look at their posture and I'm like, well, they don't seem to be in a rush. So if I am and they're not, this isn't going to go very well. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I need to completely surrender my rush, but I can just recognize like, wow, okay, what do I want to happen right now? What do they want to happen? Is there some way to meet in the middle? And especially with someone who has difficulty regulating or speaking, we'll say in this instance, someone with dementia, I might have to forego my agenda. I might actually have to kind of abandon what I thought was going to happen in order to diffuse or prevent an escalation from happening. We never want to abandon safety, right? Like I don't want to create an unsafe environment for either one of us, but if it's literally just me thinking that I was going to serve lunch and my mom is not going to eat right now, then why would I push that? I'm not going to push my two-year-old to do it because I know I'm just going to end up with a kitchen full of like mashed something sometimes we have to abandon it and just come back to it in a few minutes, you know, or come back to it when they feel like they have some agency over the situation. We all deserve to have some sense of safety and security. And if someone is kind of pushing that on us because they think it's what's right for us, or that's what they need, it's not going to feel that way. It's going to be kind of counter counterproductive. So 
yeah, they always wanted like a movement. What are some dance things I can do with them? What music should I be playing? I'm happy to give those tips, but I was like, let's just go back to awareness. Just start to notice how your carry is showing up in their body and start to learn their cues, start to learn their movement mannerisms and characteristics so that you can go, oh, that's, ooh, that's the body posture she makes right before she's about to say something really X, Y, Z, right? Or I can tell she's getting agitated because she's sitting at the edge of her seat and normally she's laid back and relaxed and much more open. So, you know, not trying to judge or really make assumptions, but just witness and create some awareness around what's happened, where this might go and just creating space for what could be. If it doesn't, great, then just go about your day. But again, it seems so simple and so cliche, but I was like, let's just look at awareness. Let's look at the, how the body is showing up in this moment in time. And again, using it on ourselves. How's my body showing up? Because if I'm dysregulated, it's not going to help them regulate and vice versa. And, and so often if it is some kind of a dyad, a spouse or a child or <clears throat> sibling, there's a whole history of conditioning mm-hmm. connected to one another's feelings. And, the, and that's hard. Like if the carry and the, like, if it's mother daughter, like there's all this attachment dynamic. So um, you're, you know, you're, you're asking for awareness which is and self-reflection, <laughs> which, yeah, is very yeah, hard. Yeah. which is, which is tough, but it's like, it's true that that's step one, right. right? Oh, wow. Because this is a pattern that may have been going on for 30 years. Right. Right. Years. Had a, right. One of my life. first, one of my first clients, the family brought me in because they needed her to be happy. She was depressed and they needed her to be happy because she was a drag to be around. And I was like, uh, okay. I mean, I'm a new clinician. So I'm like, Ooh, first client, you know? So I remember working with this woman, she was, she had aphasia. So she was almost nonverbal. And, um, at one point I remember asking her, I said, do you want to be happy? And she shook her head. No, she did not need to be happy in that moment. She did not want to be happy. And, and everybody telling her she needed to be and abandoning her because she wasn't, wasn't helping. And so the conversation ended up being with the family. You know, I was like, this is where she is. This is where she is right now. She's mourning the loss of her voice, of her friends, of her family. And if you all can't sit with that, you're the ones that that need some support around your emotions. You need to work on being there for her or being in her presence when she's not happy. They did not like that. And unfortunately, I never saw that client again. But um, they wanted a quick fix. They wanted her to be happy. and, And that was not, ethically, it's not what was in the cards. You know, she could be, um, she was okay in the moment. She had a, she still had a quality of life, but it was not about putting on a fake, you know, a brave face and just pretending to be happy. Um, she would randomly cry and their words were always stop crying. There's no need to cry, stop crying. So I was the first person that let her cry. You know, we just cried together. And it was sad that we couldn't continue that work together, but it was not what the family wanted. So it happens all the time. Such important work. Yeah, we see this over and over again in so many different avenues, right? Where people um, silence others, right? For whatever reason, whether it's age, however there's discrimination, right? Race, class, religion. Um, and if it doesn't work for us, right? We don't see eye to eye or we don't understand it, then we, we push it away because it's uncomfortable. I think there's so much to be learned from what we do. 
<laughs> right? But um, baby steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so what a, what a wonderful little path that we've taken into yeah. your work with older adults, uh, which is your specialty. And um, also who you were thinking of when you wrote your book and dedicated it. Is there anything um, else that you want to say either about your book or about your work in the world? Um, just that it's a work in progress. <laughs> it feels like it's always changing, uh, you know, based off of the world. Um, and I'm just trying to be more open to, you know, um, what's next instead of kind of, again, pushing that agenda of what needs to happen, what I think should happen. I'm trying to practice being more body aware. So I think putting this work out there um, is in creating more intention for myself, practicing what I preach. Again, kind of being a voice of like, this is what you need right now. <laughs> you need to practice this as well. This is what I'm learning. Again, it's a work in progress. And anything that I've learned along the way, if I can share with people from that lens of dance movement therapy, then that's what I'm looking forward to doing. And I look forward to hearing from people with regard to like how it resonates for them or takeaways that they receive. How did you come up with the title? Um, it was actually kind of gifted to me. Um, originally, I wanted to call it Move Your Body, Move Your Mind. And that was kind of the working title for a long time. And then I was um, working with a marketer, PR um, person, now kind of friend and colleague. And uh, it was her idea. She was like, what do you think about something about awareness, body? How like body aware? And I was like, oh, all right. I mean, that's kind of catchy, it's simple. It's, you know, straight to the point. I kept holding on to like that move your body, move your mind, but was a blessing in disguise and uh publishing house liked it. We kind of went back and forth and it turned out there was a book very similar that recently came out with um, the move your mind theme. And so it was a much better, much better title. It definitely sets itself apart. It's a different, different premise anyway, but thank her, pay homage to her in the, in the acknowledgements. Cause I was like, you, you birthed body aware. You basically gave it the title and helped support this project. So yeah. It's so nice that you had such good support. Yeah. And, and you know, it keeps coming up. I, I've been taking um, private Pilates classes, just to kind of get myself moving again. And the other day, my instructor said, you know, this won't be too hard for you because you're very body aware. And I was like, what did you just say? She was like, aware, but you're aware of your body. I was like, that's the title of my book. And she was like, I didn't even know you wrote a book. <laughs> I said, oh, have I not talked about that? Oops. <laughs> but it just keeps coming up. So I thought, oh, there's something to this. Like there's something that just feels not to be, you know, too existential, but it just feels like very pertinent and the timing just seems to kind of be falling into place. So I'm just going to, just going to ride that wave and uh, hopefully people take the ride with me. Yes. I hope people um, get your book, share it, read it. it. Does it have experientials as well as your, your sort of, uh, personal stories in it? Yeah, yeah. So it's all, it's case studies. It's more composite studies because, uh, you know, wanted to protect my, my private clients, the clients that I've worked with in, in facilities as well. So it's got composite cases and there's so many experientials along the way, um, you know, resources at the end. So 
yeah, it's very applicable and, and easy to, to, easy to implement. Um, but I've also heard from people that it's like a reminder, you know, it's kind of like dog ear this part because when I need this, I'm looking for more stability or I need to conjure up some confidence today, or we talk about changing or transition. That's the chapter I'm going to go back to because I actually need that before this presentation, you know, or I actually need that before this, this meeting with my boss. Um, so yeah, it's very experiential. Um, there's prescriptions kind of at the end for people to take with, um, you know, whenever they need it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you. This is so awesome. I, I thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate the opportunity. You're so welcome. Thank you to Erica Hornthal for coming onto the podcast and sharing about her work, her passion, and the origins of it. Thank you to Josie Rothwell, my sister, who I love, for the opening credits, and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing credits. Thank you to the Embodied Education Institute of Chicago for sponsoring and supporting this podcast. Thank you to my listeners and my patrons for joining me in the return to embodiment.